0: We're about to embark on what could be New Zealand's biggest ever government spending program. And so if we do this in the right way, where you can catalyse the creation of new opportunities and new industries, then we could really position New Zealand for the next three or four decades to emerge really strong from this.
1: Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This climate business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. My guests stirred the pot this week with a plan for a post-COVID recovery. Or not so much a plan as a bunch of ideas that could translate into a plan if government, business and the public got in behind them. Rod Drury is the founder of Xero, but since stepping down as CEO, he's had time to think. Roger Dennis is an analyst and innovation consultant. A few years ago, they conspired to convince the government to create the role of chief technology officer. And now they want to create a cross-sector, bipartisan group to lead New Zealand, not just out of COVID-19 but into an exciting future with renewable energy, nationwide 5G and an immigration scheme that lures the rich and powerful down under. If that sounds all a bit like wishful thinking, then you don't know, Rod and Roger. I started by asking Rod what he's been up to since stepping back from zero. Well, I think last time we heard from you, Rod, uh, you were preparing to schmooze billionaires at APEC and the America's Cup. But... um, Things have probably gone a bit quiet on that front. What have you been up to since you uh, stepped away? I wouldn't say stepped down, but stepped away from zero.
2: Yeah. So the border zero is still pretty busy. You know, we're a three three thousand person business now. So, you know, there's always lots of work to do there. So been been trying to have that as my main work thing. Just a couple of startups I'd sort of um, have been playing with. Been enjoying doing some things with them. Uh, really getting fit, spending time with kids, but my kind of main work thing really has been looking at some of these big picture things, so I really spent quite a bit of time over the last year thinking about, you know, what what could our plan for uh, New Zealand be? So, um, you know, as this crisis has taken place, quite a lot of the work I've been doing over the last year really comes to the fore, and it's kind of nice to talk about those ideas and and, and sort of bring them to the public.
1: And... um... Roger, you've kind of been thrust into the limelight with Rod's high profile. Uh, How long have you two been collaborating?
0: Uh, Rod and I have been uh, working on various things for quite a few years now. One of the things we um, spent a bit of time on uh, a few years ago was uh, the office of the CTO for New Zealand, uh, which had a a bit of a mixed outcome in the end, but I think it's heading in the right direction now.
1: Uh, it did have a mixed reaction, and but um, this collaboration uh, around post-COVID and the re- the recovery thereof. Uh, what's, what what sends you down this line of thought, uh, and and how did you? Um, what I suppose, where did you look to for inspiration?
0: So, in my day job, what I do is I help uh, large organisations and governments understand where the world's going. Uh, What does it mean? And then what are the right strategic questions to be asked? And so I've done this for quite a while uh, in various parts of the world for various organisations. And one of the things that always strikes me in uh, crisis situations is that you really need to think about how to think first. And being in Christchurch, uh, having lived through the quakes, what's really interesting is how people responded to that situation and how essentially uh, government officials stayed in the react mode for too long and didn't understand the need to get above the crisis to actually emerge stronger from it. And so in this regard, there's some um, ways in which you can think about how you respond to a crisis. And if I just share my screen for a minute, uh, I'll give you an idea of, of how this works. So this framework And uh, what you've got is um, three bands of thinking. So a a red, uh, yellow and a green. And so um, often what you find in a crisis is people stay in the red, which is the immediate and necessary reaction to a crisis. However, the trick with getting ahead of a crisis is to think across three different waves simultaneously. So the second one in the middle there is, how do you stay four to six weeks of what's going on? And how do you start to get uh, ahead of where the situation might end up? And the green is the um, the area that um, really excites me the most, which is how do you emerge stronger from this crisis? And the trick for any response to this is how do you have all three of these views going at the same time? And that's not always easy, but in a crisis, it's absolutely necessary because otherwise you'll stay in the red, and staying in the red won't position you to emerge stronger. Do you mean
1: to say that each one of those phases has a different leadership style or even different personnel suited for each phase, or are they effectively kind of the three hats that the leadership wears
0: Now, that's a very good question, very appropriate. So you need different people and different styles of thinking in each of those waves. So what you'll find is that it's a different mindset to be with the immediate response than actually be in the near term versus the long term. And it's a mistake to have the same people trying to work across all three styles of thinking at the same time. You can have a leadership team that's across all three styles and getting the reports fed in, but to expect the same people to carry out those three waves of thinking simultaneously won't give you the result where you emerge stronger.
1: Mm. I I suspect that that first phase, Rod, is very much about command and control, right? It's about um, making fast decisions, perhaps not even necessarily well through but but necessary. Um, your focus as a leader has, has typically been sort of in that second and third horizon right. Is that what interests you about Dennis's model?
2: I really like the model for all of those reasons. There are those different phases. And I think if you're the CEO of something, you're always operating in those different modes, but you're not doing it all yourself. So in a normal business, like a normal software business, you've got your day-to-day crises, which, which are happening. Then you've got your work programs, which, which are kind of moving you forward. And you're also making sure, sure you have, a, as part of your portfolio, looking at long-term things as well. So this kind of thinking of having different styles is pretty common in uh, the business world. What was interesting in the in that kind of first wave though is as i got involved again with roger in this is seeing that um quite a lot of that was driven from outside government there were a bunch of business leaders who were starting to talk to each other thinking hey this is really serious they had um strong connections with with um with countries through the world that were sort of seeing this thing really starting to take off and they probably had the time and the experience to look at the numbers and and can see what was coming. So Mm. there was a lot of work done in that first wave um, where effectively those business leaders uh, got together and really lobbied for uh, New Zealand to close and also used their business resource to do some of those really early projects. And Roger can talk more about those, but getting the PPE, getting... Uh, some ventilators getting oxygen for ventilators and and those sort of projects Mm. and then and that but that phase still goes on so the next part of that immediate phase now um, is contact tracing and uh there's a lot of work that's been put into that and these are like one of the challenges this phase now is is how do you actually if you have a great solution how do you get through all the noise to get that into the mix so there's still quite a lot of work which is happening in that first phase while we're also looking and evangelizing the immediate things we can do now as we're looking at sort of kickstarting things again and then making yeah. sure we're positioning ourselves for the future in that third wave.
1: Hmm. Tell us about your dreams and visions, if you like, for that third phase because there have <sighs> been pretty interesting ideas put out. But what, what have you been thinking about what the third horizon looks like?
2: Yeah, well, one of the things, you know, I've been in business in New Zealand for, you know, 25 plus years now. And I remember in the late 90s, we sort of, you know, from my perspective and recollection, we always had a, we had a bit of a strategy. We had the knowledge wave and a few things. And one of the frustrating things, I think, is that everything's become very, very short term while the world has changed quite a lot. So mm-hmm. um, as I haven't been working full time, I've been spending a lot of time on my bike, lots of time thinking, a lot of time being able to do research. And you get a real view of what we could be doing and looking for you know what are the sort of platforms that can move new zealand forward and um you know one of the 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 first time i spent some some really good quality time uh, with roger we were on a we're on a project we were looking at what you know what are the values of, of new zealanders that make us different and um obviously the environment came out as you know very strong that that's a very obvious one but one that was interesting to the non-New Zealanders in the room was equality as a core value and you see that in the way that um, New Zealanders conduct themselves and the things that we talk about and that was mm-hmm. really interesting because you, you start thinking about what are, the, what are the country values and anything you do needs to fit in fit in with those things So I've been really thinking about, um, you know, what what do we look like? What's exciting? What are the kind of trends that are sort of coming together over the next five to 10 years? And I was kind of annoyed that, you know, the Saudi Arabians had this oil they could just pull out of the ground and they get all this money from it. I was really thinking about, you know, what's our version of that? And for me, it was quite obvious after a bit of thinking it was renewable electricity. And so what I've done over the last couple of years is kind of pull the string on why aren't we at um, 100 percent? And that was really interesting and quite obvious why we're not and then thinking about well you know what are the bits of tech that come together which could mean that we you know could really transform our new zealand create a platform we have we have really cheap renewable electricity and all of the all of, all of the growth and opportunities that would come from that yeah. so in that wave three those long-term ones I've been pushing that pretty hard and that's getting a nice feedback. But I think the what the real focus is on this week is some of those wave two projects. And um, you know, we're having a good discussion with those things at the moment. What are what are the jobs that we can create right now? What are the, the right projects to get us towards the, towards a good direction but but save jobs now?
1: What are those projects? Because I, I imagine that there might be a trade-off, for instance, in the you can imagine jobs that might, uh, industries that might soak up a lot of workers. I'm thinking, for instance, the retail sector and the tourism sector, forestry. They tend to be low wage, lower skilled kind of roles. Possibly not long term benefit to New Zealand where you're really developing deep skills with high impact and high wage kind of roles. Uh, is there a trade-off that has to be made to sort of soak up employment in the short term but then, I don't know, build for the future?
2: Yeah, well, I think that's why having, you know, good frameworks allows you to test all these types of things. So so the three or four that we're talking about at the moment are ones that we kind of know about already and we can make a a quick decision on. So probably the one that's the most interesting is this idea that comes from, you know, now that, take Queenstown as an example, international tourism has stopped probably for 18 months or so. So if tourism stops and the construction industry stops after that, and then, you know, construction industry, you know, that these these are usually uh, big ticket items and the money that comes in to build things gets rippled, you know, right through most most um, sort of local economies from the coffee shops and all the tradies and, and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, an obvious uh, thing that we've been floating is, well, why wouldn't we... Um, uh, uh, leverage the brand that uh, New Zealand has and allow people from overseas to commit to a five or ten million dollar plus construction project and you know not saying we can open, open up all of New Zealand but maybe you know parts like Queenstown, maybe uh, the Tukituki Valley and the Hawke's Bay, that North, uh, uh, that golf course uh, that's up in Northland and um, and let people come in and spend money right now. And that could be a way that we keep construction jobs going, but that's a very emotional issue for New Zealand because right. of that equality value. So right. I think you know whether whether, we're, whether it's the right thing to do or not. I think that's something that we should test really quickly, right. and um, and just see if it's there. And if we say no, it's fine. Let's move on to the next idea. But it's just logical, and certainly in my experience, that people that have um, have come down here and invested. New Zealand are just fantastic citizens. They don't consume any resources. They're not using roads, uh, education, not really using health, but they pay you know GST on everything, and they really are, are respectful and try to build good you know deep connections with people down here. And um, certainly, my experience have helped us um, with access to their networks and helped us grow offshore. Um, but you know, but you look at the comments that are coming back on those sort of ideas. Is a uh, you know some people have an absolute allergic reaction, but I think let's have a mature discussion about it and, you know, let's see where we land. The,
0: the there are already already... A
2: better.
1: Oh, right, Shall you Probably go in
0: a, in that second wave, um There's other things you can do as well. There's so lots of talk at the moment about infrastructure projects. And there's a way of doing infrastructure that actually <coughs> creates multiple simultaneous benefits. So there's this concept around um, this idea of a thing called a digital twin, And so when you actually create an infrastructure asset, you don't just create the physical asset, but you actually map it uh, into a data framework. And then what you can do is start to compare performance of that asset against other assets. So um, you can put uh, sensors uh, into infrastructure assets. You can start to model energy consumption, water consumption, that type of thing. So you build that in from the outset so, not only do you have projects which actually employ people and create much needed infrastructure, but then alongside that, you create a parallel industry where small businesses and startups start to leverage this data into new frameworks. That means not only do we understand where taxpayer money can be spent most efficiently later on by analyzing how these assets performed, but we also position the entire infrastructure industry as being world leading. So when the rest of the world starts to emerge, we can have a whole new industry set up where other countries can start to leverage that and look at how assets perform. How long do bridges work? What sort of heat pumps need in public housing? What gives you the most efficient insulation? All these types of things which are only possible to understand using rich data frameworks. And that's how you use the second wave thinking to start powering that long-term benefit for New Zealand uh, from that massive taxpayer investment. So that might
1: be applied, say, for instance, in, I don't know, choose an industry like forestry, which is or or one of these sort of shovel-ready industries uh, or projects that are ready to go. Can can you give me an example of how that thinking might be applied in a real
0: industry? In, In forestry, for example? Yeah, yeah. So uh, right now, there is a um, a small surveying company uh, based down the Southern Lakes, and um, they have taken um, high-definition cameras and LIDAR, uh, dropped that in the bottom of a Cessna. And what that means is they can fly over a forestry plantation uh, and tell you very accurately uh, which trees are ready to harvest now versus which trees can stay in the ground later. So essentially, you are doing one pass over a plantation and instantly um, assessing the maturity of the plantation, which trees you can harvest, which trees you leave in the ground. And you use data to give you information that was simply impossible to get before.
1: What are some examples of the Level uh, Horizon 3 projects? Um, Rod, you've talked about going uh, our uh, fully renewable electric. Um, supply and how might that happen we, we, we just don't have enough generation capacity to to, to, pump, uh, to to really knock Huntley out of the network
2: Yeah that's right so the, the work that I did you know pulling the string on why, why we won't get to hundred percent is we found we only store about two or three weeks worth of water. So you know, because we have droughts every so often, you have to have this extra supply that's there.
0: Mm.
2: And um, and then what I found was a lot of the uh, a lot of the big users of energy for industrial heating processes, they can buy um, uh, their heat using oil and gas at say the numbers were something like about forty five bucks a unit, but electricity was like sixty five bucks a unit. So it's just not rational. So what you have to do to get to get that flip to one hundred percent, you have to increase the supply of electricity. And then, um, and then get that uh, uh, to get that price down below that. Then everybody should flip because it's a logical thing. So then you kind of ask the question: Well, um, uh, what, you know, why do we stop building them? And I think that comes back to the um, environmental value. And it's been hard to get any sort of dam projects or water storage projects across the line in New Zealand. But if you start looking at what you can do with it, if you work on the demand side, and if people get excited about, you know, what sort of things could we do? So things like electric aviation, the technology of that is getting to a point where in like a 10-year time horizon, we could completely flip our domestic aviation fleet to be 100% electric, which means that, you know, the price of flights comes down because the fuel cost comes down, uh, but also we aren't using any carbon at all, and if people start seeing those projects and go, yeah, we absolutely want that, then it allows you to come back and have a mature discussion about whether we should sacrifice or uh, change a, a relatively small amount of land, um, you're going to put some dams on it, and then you get a whole lot of other benefits, like if you are managing water, you have to do this in an environmentally, environmentally friendly way, so you're looking for benefits like being able to clean rivers or do more plant-based proteins and all of those sort of things. So you know, obvious things like flipping the um, uh, the vehicle fleet, getting the price of electricity, so we can use it in industrial heating, which means that any product we make has a renewable component, uh, which adds value to it as we sell these things all around the world. So yeah. I think it's exciting. We don't have to say, look, let's just build a dam. You know, that 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 you know, that's just a bit of technology um, that we can you know go. We know what those projects look like, but it's actually getting excited about these really big. Um, a vision project so that new zealanders go actually i quite like that so yes let, let's have the talk about the dam the other thing just picking up from roger's point is in all these projects the wave two and the wave three we're not looking for government funding i mean government funding is us it's the taxpayers and what i've learned especially with infrastructure investment and working with um you know now that you know we're an asx um hundred company we're seeing different types of um investors come in and uh you know as, as i've got to know uh the landscape for the investment community what i've learned is that you know that if you take australia as an example they have two trillion dollars of funds under management and i normally give that money out to some uh, other fund managers who will invest in amazon google microsoft alibaba those sort of companies that don't pay domestic tax and are creating um employment issues right now so those um sovereign wealth funds are absolutely looking for long-term infrastructure investments and if we can line up big infrastructure projects they can put you know five to ten billion dollars to work that's very attractive to them so in these sort of wave two and wave three projects we're not looking for a handout from government it's actually just getting the market architecture right so a good one a good example of that is um you know what we're talking about with 5g you know we've seen that the ufb investment has gone really well because we can do these types of calls um through new zealand in a way that you can't do in australia and probably our domestic uh, internet infrastructure is even better than the states you'd say now Um, so why wouldn't we do the same for 5g you know um, instead of having the traditional telcos owning the the uh, very expensive infrastructure that goes all around the country and has aspects of social good to put um, connectivity through uh, the regions and less dense places because we think that's a good thing for uh, new zealand we just separate that out say that as infrastructure Um, we work out with the new zealand super fund and the australian super funds how much it it is maybe it's two billion maybe it's four billion Um, they just need to you know they can come in and invest in that and then we can just put a per connection charge of any sort of retailer that connects over that national network and any super profit that comes from that we can put back into the network to take it out even further so some of those interesting um really cool projects for wave two could be pushing fiber out further to the sort of next round of people that weren't um, economic in the first model because we can see the benefit and new zealand will be more distributed through the regions from here on in and then looking at the
1: um, potentially the uh, how the mobile networks as well i know you're saying you don't necessarily need government money but you do need government and a lot of these initiatives are going to be centrally led right so how do you overcome the politics of short termism of the election cycle of the need for the opposition to continually oppose uh, is there have we entered some sort of new magic World, Roger, where everyone's playing nice?
0: So the the lessons for this um, are relatively recent in New Zealand's history with the Christchurch quakes. And so being in Christchurch, I've observed that firsthand. And what we saw in Christchurch was that effectively the government of the time stayed in the red area for way too long and didn't understand how to get ahead of the crisis or even where to think about the long-term stuff and bring in any of that private sector thinking that Rod's talking about. And so this framework is really part of a lesson that's come out of Christchurch. That, at the time, was the largest ever taxpayer infrastructure project in New Zealand. And what we've ended up with was a slightly better version of what the old Christchurch was, And even that's not finished. So the convention centre, for example, uh, has a real risk right now of being a multi-hundred-million-dollar white elephant because no one's travelling right now. And, you know, potentially no one was travelling even before that convention centre idea got Mm -hmm. mooted. So what needs to happen here is um, a really well-structured framework for how you think about the thinking before you get to it. I'll give another example from Christchurch. So um, if you look at a couple of the institutions that uh, dealt uh, with the Christchurch quake, one was EQC. And EQC, prior to the quakes, was an organisation primarily set up uh, to collect levies. And after the quakes, uh, essentially what happened was uh, the knowledge of officials uh, was scaled up to limit of their boundaries and you ended up with a dysfunctional organization that was the result of a royal commission now um, if you contrast that to another organization in christchurch uh, which was called skirt the stronger christchurch infrastructure recovery team uh, what they did was they were an alliance between central government a local government and private contractors and uh, rather than actually push the button straight away uh, and start diggers and uh, road crews, etc. restoring the horizontal infrastructure, which was their task, uh, what they did was basically locked themselves away for three months to figure out what was best practice in this area. Now, the contrast here is that while the Christchurch City Council uh, previously managed to install five kilometers of below ground infrastructure a year, Uh, skirt-locked themselves in a room for three months, and then when they finally started work, uh, they did five kilometres a month, 12 times faster than the city council managed the previous year. Mm. So they thought about how to think. They went 12 times faster, and they won international engineering awards, and they got um, a really favourable review from the Auditor General at the time. So there's really two very clear contrasting stories that have come out of these multi-billion dollar projects run by government in Christchurch in recent history, uh, EQC versus skirt. And so this framework really addresses that and it really needs to have uh, buy-in across the political spectrum. So this is not a framework which can have, um, you know, some sort of political ownership because at the end of the day, we're all in this together as a country. New Zealand as a whole needs to emerge stronger from this. Political stone throwing over this framework will not get us out of this hole.
1: So you mentioned before a change of personnel or a different type of person or leader for each one of those phases. Rod, have you got a? Is there a person in mind? Is there a group of people that you have in mind for suggesting or pushing forward?
2: um yeah yeah i've sort of mentioned a few people's names before it's really for them to put themselves up but there are people that have status and i think um it'd be clever for uh, the government to look for people that have maybe been on the other side of the fence for a while um who who could lead those that have the respect of most uh, new zealanders um you know maybe people who have um you know had a good uh, political career and form something which is clearly cross party and saying mm-hmm. people that have had the respect of business as well, so we can get that two way.
1: I mean, you uh, mentioned Stephen Joyce, right? Who who uh, at least one of his successes was the UFB, which he continued. Uh, he really continued the work of the previous Labor government and and finished the job, didn't he? And UFB yeah. is actually not a bad example of this sort of um, multi. I don't know. You know, multi-party initiative.
2: Yeah, and I think you know Stephen and people like that are are quite commercial. You know, they've got a lot of real-world experience and they have good relationships with people, so they can you know be there and can listen to the ideas and you know work out okay. it's a bunch of a bit crazy. That's kind of interesting and and mm. uh, you know pull those pull those things together. And I think, you know, that could be a good way uh, for this government to move forward. But uh, I mean, we have you know, five to 10 years of work on the long term projects. And um, but there are some key decisions that we can make soon. Some of the, you know, wave two projects, um, you know, the, the our discussion about opening up the overseas investment office. That's on David Parker. So, you know, I'm being very clear. OK, David, you, you, you know, you give us the reasons why not. But it's an obvious place to look rather than taxpayer money. We can fund this from overseas. Um, you know, Chris Farboy, he's that? done the work. Pardon? What's been the reaction to that idea? Oh, he's religiously opposed to it, but I, I haven't heard any good I- good ideas. Why not? I mean, a lot of it was just, um, you know, the fires were stoked for that kind of um, anti-foreigner buying view, uh, you know, over the last sort of five or six years. And it's kind of frustrating when people just say it without actually uh, having real experience with working these people. As I said, my experiences have been great. But also the 5G one, that's something where industry's been talking to the you know, various commerce ministers around that one. I think that's quite an easy decision to make. You know, it's pretty logical. That's in Chris Farfoy's mm. portfolio, so let's have a quick decision, yes or no. Um, you know, And the other just little quick ones that we should be fixing at the same time, but I mentioned uh, the... Um, uh, is PayWave and getting our uh, domestic debit network onto contactless systems. And that, you know, just requires, you know, that's happened in Australia. Um, Each, I've worked with four different commerce ministers on that one. So all the work's been done. It actually just needs a bit of action happening now. And then that'll, um, if we can get that right, then obviously people don't want to touch terminals right now, but we get to then build a whole lot of other really good services over our payments network, which we used to be known for. And um, what's been really fun, actually, because the tech world's quite small, is reaching out to the um, autonomous uh, vehicle leaders in the world who are all now at the point where they're starting to do trials. So I've been chatting to a number of um, tech CEOs that are running businesses like that all over the world and saying, look, would you consider uh, New Zealand, you know, maybe Wellington is a right-hand drive test market for those sort of technologies, and it's been fascinating. You know, they are absolutely looking at that, and we have um, we have that playbook running now with um, electric flying taxis. You know, down in the middle of the South Island. So there's a re- there's some real cool opportunities to um, you know bring um, inward investment to New Zealand. It, it just grows our brand of you know being fairly onto it and doing cool stuff. And then any R&D that happens here, we'll see all sorts of opportunities for building businesses around the side of that as well that we can export. So there is, it's really exciting. There's quite a lot to do. But the key thing is keeping people in jobs right now, which is a you know, massive focus.
0: Mm. And to Rod's point, what's interesting about that from a, a global perspective is New Zealand looks to be one of the first countries to emerge from this crisis. And so while other places like the States and Europe are you know, pretty much still in the um, in the trenches, there can be opportunities, like Rod said, for us to go to other countries and say, if you guys are still fighting but you still have ambitions to keep going ahead and test stuff, then why not come down here because, you know, we're, we're not quite back to normal, but we do have opportunity to help you progress that if your home country is still in the trenches with the virus. Hmm.
2: Actually, I think a good example of that um, is contact tracing. And this is, um, there's a lot, I've had like four or five uh, contacts from different businesses who have a lot of credentials in that space. And the actual um, mechanism, you know, what we found is that Apple and Google, the idea that you just walk around and your Bluetooth phones, uh, you know, is a recording that you walk past somebody that that doesn't that seems to be fiction because phones don't work like that. So looking at um, you know whether there's active contact tracing apps so you kind of check into the supermarket or check into the fast food st- store all those things um, and uh, quite a lot of that is around identity and there's been a lot of work for companies that have actually solved that problem and the actual you know checking in and checking out is relatively straightforward so the issue there is is again we should be leading in contact tracing because we'd be one of the first countries that actually starts coming clear so people Mm -hmm. will look to see what we did but we don't actually know who's out there so we did a project once zero started doing farming we went and approached uh, federated farmers it's probably six or seven years ago and we had the Feds put on um, a discovery day where we got all of the software vendors and farming. Uh, we gave them, you know, fifteen to twenty minutes. Um, you know, they had to pre-register. Then they had fifteen or twenty minutes to show everybody what they were doing. And it was really interesting because we got to discover these great solutions and actually connected a few people together. And it was mm-hmm. the first time the industry came together. So one thing we could do for contact tracing is. Um, you know, basically let companies, New Zealand companies who think they have a contract tracing uh, solution to um, basically register interest, then there might be four or five of them, and then being able to do like a 15-minute demo just so we can quickly map what's going on out there, see where the talent is, and maybe we can put that together and combine the um, uh, the kind of back end of the contact tracing engine with some more active tr- active uh, tracing where people check in and check out of, of various places. So that could be a very specific thing that we could do over the next few days.
0: Mm. Uh, I wonder... Um, and also, to, to Rod's point about the, the agricultural sector, you know, as a country, we have this really rich history of agricultural innovation. You think about refrigeration, you think about lamb, butter, now we're into dairy. You know, it's been really... Um, Quite an exciting opportunity for New Zealand to innovate around this. Countries like China and all through Asia will become you know, massively important for us. How do we start to innovate around offering like Providence through the supply chain? So, you know, someone in Beijing picks up a piece of uh, prime quality beef and can see all the way through the supply chain what the story is behind that. And that's going to become really important in a post-COVID world. So there's lots of opportunity right across the spectrum through some of our more traditional industries as well. Mm. I think there'll be a lot of people watching
1: this and then listening to the podcast thinking, yeah, that sounds great. Now what?
2: Yeah, yeah. so the next step for, um, uh, for, for us, I think, is there's a, um, a pandemic uh, response select committee, something meeting happening on Thursday. So we'll be able to mention some of these ideas. And I think a key thing out of that will be um i think going through this model uh, and and saying it's time to resource up the sort of wave two and the wave three and actually get the projects on and try to drive towards a quick decision so on the overseas investment one that's you know but we can't take six months because Construction companies can probably stay alive for two months if that, right? So these are quick decisions that we need to make, and if we and if they're a fast fail, that's fine. But let's just move on and make those decisions uh, uh, fairly quickly, the ones that we can, and then um, create a forum where we can have somebody that um, you know goes and gets the gets the big ideas and um, you know sorts them out, and then says actually these you know four or five are the ones that we can get behind. And you know, at the end of this process, maybe we've even got a strategy for uh, New Zealand. Wouldn't that be exciting?
1: <laughs> Imagine it. <that. laughs> uh, how hopeful are you, Roger? Um, you you um, you work, I know, with some pretty progressive companies. Um, not all of them in New Zealand. How hopeful are New Zealand? Could New Zealand could actually achieve long term planning? Seems like a an oxymoron for us.
0: It is, and there's a uh, sort of like a rich legacy of people trying to do this. I mean, my big thing in this space is um, never waste a crisis. So we're about to embark on what could be New Zealand's biggest ever government spending program. And so if we do this in the right way, where you can catalyze the creation of new opportunities and in new industries, I mean, we could really position New Zealand for the next three or four decades to emerge really strong from this. And some of the feedback we've had from government already suggested that thinking is starting to get embedded. The translation now is how do you progress that from thinking in the red to action in the second and third wave and the yellow and the green? And that's what I'm really excited about. Great.
1: Uh, your framework, I assume it could be shared somewhere. If, I, if I, have it. I, you're happy for me to share it on Facebook and on on various uh, platforms. Yes. Fantastic. And if people want to get in in touch and get involved, what do they do, Rod? How how do they get hold of you?
2: Please don't call me. (laughs) No, I think there's a few discussions going on. Um, There's a LinkedIn discussion, and
1: wherever you post this, we'll go in there and put some comments. Fantastic. Hey, thanks for joining us on This Climate Business, and uh, all the best with the next phase, phase two. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent, at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vheringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. in e No